0: Continuing our study, we're going to go into the the rapture, which is probably uh, the most controversial. I consider this to be more controversial than the different uh, tactics and ideologies regarding the beast and his reign and how long and the length of the tribulation. Um, there is this thing called the rapture, and we probably shouldn't call it a thing, but I'm going to call it that because we know that the word rapture is not found anywhere in the scriptures, but it is based off of a Greek word that is actually mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is the word harpazo. And herpazo is where we get the term rapture from. So herpazo literally means to snatch away or to seize. Um, and that is what was the word that was used by Paul. Um, it was first used by Paul um, in 1 Thessalonians when he is the describing the great, uh, as we call it, the great catching away. The saints, and so from that word, um, herpazo again, which is a Greek word, has uh derived from what we use today in the 20th and 21st century as the word rapture. And of course, rapture is a word in the English language meaning to be caught up, um, to be whisked away, so to speak. So it's the same exact meaning. But now we have titled it the rapture or the harpazo of the church of Jesus Christ. And so there is a lot of controversy today in regards to the rapture as far as first and foremost, if it even happens. there is great debate that states that the rapture wasn't even something that was introduced until the 19th century. Um, No one was even talking about it prior to that. Uh, As far as the scriptures were concerned, it wasn't taught in church or in um, Bible study or anything of that nature. And so then in the 19th, early 19th century, it was introduced into um, the church and um, and then from there it took off and then. We find these groups of people who have just constantly and always uh talked about the rapture. That has also led to um, some very controversial and even diabolical uh terms of events, turn of events um over the last several decades, which there have been cults um that have gone as far as uh, date setting as to when the rapture would take place. Of which all have failed because we are still here. And we have multiple um, incidences where people believe the rapture was coming or they had set dates for them. They had prepared for the end of the world. They have, had congregated into isolated or rural areas. Um, some had, you know, followed false Christ, even saying false leaders and teachers and prophets. Um, into places where they thought they would find themselves saved and so on and so forth. So, so because of that, there is a group of Christians that the word or the term uh, rapture has become a bad taste in the mouth because there has been a lot of fanatics out there who have dates that, um, even though the scripture clearly indicated um, Jesus himself said that We would not know the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. However, people took it upon themselves and man's own knowledge that they could calculate um, when the rapture was going to take place or when the even when as far as when is the rise of the beast would take place. And again and again and again and again, every year it has it has miserably failed. Okay, but like I said, because Over the last five or so decades, we have had multiple people, if not more, um, that have tried to actually predict the date of the rapture. Um, Now in the 21st century, we have a large group of evangelical Christians who do not even believe that this will take place. In fact they have even gone as far as saying that the whole idea of the rapture is a form of escapism, um, it is witchcraft, it is um, people who believe in it um, are been deemed heretics there has even caused a branch off of group of believers to believe that anyone who even believes in such a rapture Um, has been tricked by Lucifer and some people have even taught that there is going to be what they call a false rapture um, that will take place that will try to trick people into believing that people have been caught away and that they should not pay attention to this because this too is also a part of the Luciferian movement um, and so on and so forth so there's a lot of there's a lot of derogatory things that have come out of the belief of, of the rapture and it's turn of fits. And Tuning it down some and coming down to probably the majority of evangelical believers who, who know, or shall I say believe in some form of rapture, um, then it is the argument of when it's going to happen. So that in itself has also taken its own turn in the sense that the rapture event itself has been broken down into a pre-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, and a post-tribulation event. So so we have a group of people, a group of evangelicals who believe in a pre-trib event, and, and I'm gonna give you the explanation of what that means, okay? So so those people, which is a large, believe it or not, it's the majority. Um, they slightly, they're slightly more than half, let me put it that way, of people who, and this is based off of the percentage of people who actually believe in the actual event of the rapture. Because like I said, there are evangelicals that do not believe it at all. Okay, They think it's a, a hoax, a lie from the pit of hell, so on and so forth. Um, but for those of people who do believe in a rapture event, The majority of them, a little more than half, believe that it will take place in what they have categorized as the pre tribulation uh, rapture. So, what that is defined as is this. As we were talking about in the last teaching, we kind of went over the tribulation, and we know that according to um, the book of Revelation, the great, the the tribulation, great tribulation, or shall I say, the event of the end times, let me put it that way, consists of 21 judgments. Again, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Okay. So the people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture believe that the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the bride, so to speak. Will be raptured before um, anything that takes place in Revelation, starting in Revelation chapter six. In fact, a lot of pre-tribulation believers obtain the rapture of the church, um, specifically to um, to Revelation chapter four, because Revelation chapter four, uh, John opens up, of course, with. Um, he hears the sound of what was, was perceived to be like a trumpet. And he hears a voice, um, a door that is open first, I should say, and then heaven. And then he hears a voice that says, come up hither. I will show you things much that wish, which is to take place after. And what is the after? So when we look at chapter one, two, and three of the book of Revelation, we find, uh, the seven churches. Okay, that are addressed by Jesus Christ um, to John to write. Okay, and i actually, we're going to actually do a teaching in regards to that too, because the seven churches were seven actual churches that existed in Asia Minor at that time, part of the first century church, um, during the time that John was alive and exiled on the island of Patmos. Uh, All of those churches that were listed or cities and churches that were listed in those cities um, were actual places that are in now what is called modern, what is modern day Turkey. Okay, so Pergamon, Thyatira, Laodicea, Ephesus, Philadelphia, all of it, they were actual places in what is now modern day Turkey, okay? So Jesus was addressing these seven churches based off of what he had against them, what they had right and what they had wrong. Okay, but in a sense, it also represents this multi-layer. It also represented seven church errors. And it also represents what I took a step further when I taught the book of Revelation a year or so ago or two years ago, is that it also represents seven types of Christians. Okay, so then after that, after chapter three, you don't hear anything about the church of this, the church of that, the church of this. You don't hear the word church again. So because of that, it is taught that starting in chapter four, um, everything that is to take place after that um, represents the fact that the church is raptured, so to speak, in chapter four. Let me just put it that way. And so by the time you get to chapter six, two chapters later, and you start talking about first seal, second seal, you know, the four horsemen, the church is nowhere to be found because they're in heaven. And there's no bad events that happen with the church here. Okay, so that is the definition of the pre-tribulation rapture believers. So moving on, there is the next group of people who believe in what is called a mid-tribulation rapture belief. And what the mid-tribulation rapture belief people indicate is that basically um, there is a seven-year tribulation, which we just, we just covered in the last teaching. There's a seven-year tribulation, and midway through, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Uh, around the time that the abomination of desolation happens, somewhere around there, that um, the church of Jesus Christ is raptured out because they are not here or appointed to wrath. And they consider the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation as God's wrath and because the scripture tells us that the church is not appointed to wrath, it means that they cannot go through it. So and a lot of people actually um, dictate that the midpoint the, the tribulation happened or excuse me, the midpoint tribulation happens during the last trumpet. And they base that off of a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we are actually going to go over tonight as well. And and they based off of what Paul says in First Corinthians 13, excuse me, 15, and because it says at the last trumpet. So they say, well, when John gets to the, the seventh and the last trumpet, and when you look at the book of Revelation and you go into the seventh trumpet, there is kind of a turn of events um, that the seventh trumpet produces where it talks about and people in heaven say it is done and they're giving honor and glory to God. And in the, in the the four creatures and the people are in heaven and the 144,000 are in heaven and so on and so forth. And so they said, well, look, look at that right there. That proves that at that last trumpet, which is matching with Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then that means that this is where the church is is raptured into into heaven. OK, and so that's where the mid-tribbers stay. They believe that. Or, Stan, I should say, they believe that the first three and a half years of the seven year tribulation, um, the church is here for, and then at that last trumpet, which somehow they believe the last trumpet takes place in the middle of the tribulation, um, and that the last three and a half years consist of the seven bulls, and that is when the church is not here anymore. Okay. So then there is the final group, which is called the post-tribbers. Some people call them the post-millennialists, okay? And so for me, I think, you know, well, let me let me leave my, my comments out of there just yet. We'll come back to my comments. But it's really interesting because the post-tribbers believe in a rapture, but what they believe is that the the church the entire church goes or the church goes through the entire 7-year tribulation period okay and at the end of that 7 years some point between that point and the the end of the 7 years whatever point that is i guess that would be after um The bowl, the seventh bowl is released and the time that the sky breaks open and Jesus comes back on a white horse with what Jude explains is 10,000 thousands of saints that there is a rapture that takes place. So basically, basically the, the church gets raptured up into heaven to meet Jesus in the air at the end of the tribulation, and then we all together come back right back down to earth uh to defeat the antichrist and the false prophet who were thrown into the lake of fire alive and then we and then we reign upon the earth with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? And they base that off of Matthew chapter 24 When Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So they say that that is based on that scripture and that particular verse that proves that the church is going to go through the entire seven year tribulation and then we are raptured up and then we come right back down and we reign with Jesus for a thousand years, okay? So that's what they're basing that off of. So those are the categories of the pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation believers. Okay? And I'm pretty sure all, if not most of you, have heard of these three categories. And I'm pretty sure those of you who are listening to the teaching tonight you fall in one of those three categories. You believe it's either pre or mid or post, somewhere to that effect. So what am I gonna teach you tonight? I'm going to actually teach you that none of that is true. And I know that that is going to be a shock to many of you, but it's not biblically backed up. Now, I just sat down and told you where they get their scriptures from, correct? okay. So I'm not going to come to you empty handed and I'm not going to come to you off of of ideology, um, beliefs or what 10,000 other people may have written books about or wrote movies or produced movies about or CDs about. I'm going to take you straight into the word of God. And I'm going to prove to you tonight that pre, mid and post does not exist anywhere in the scriptures. Okay, now. I'm also going to easily debunk the fact that people who say there is no catching away of the church is a lie. And that'll be the easiest part of tonight's teaching because there is a catching away and it's scripturally based. Whether you want to call it a rapture or a harpazo, a great taking away, a twinkling of an eye, whatever you want to call it, it's there. It exists. If it wasn't true, it The people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, who wrote these letters, these epistles, these documentations would not have written it. It would not be there. Okay, the word of God is truth. And, you know, yes, there are accounts of from different people in different angles. And therefore, because of that, there are things. And now we're going to go over that tonight, too, that have been lost in translation. We're going to talk about that. It's going to actually kind of a little bit tie into what we were just talking about in the previous section about the the tribulation and the length of the tribulation. We're going to talk about the word tribulation tonight, and we're going to go into all of that to give you a clear understanding of what it is. We have to know that, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the Old Testament uh, from what we classify as Genesis to Malachi was written in uh, majority Hebrew and partial Aramaic, which is still a form of Hebrew. And the entire New Testament, for the most part, from Matthew to Revelation, was written in Greek, Uh, minus Matthew, who it has been proven, was originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek, okay? Okay. And what you need to understand is that both Greek, Aramaic and Hebrew are very complex languages. They have multiple layers to their wording. The English language is not the easiest language on earth, but what happens is that we are a more simpler language. Okay? And so because, and I know that may sound crazy for those of you who struggled in English in school or with grammar and punctuation, But because of the way the English language is set up and it is simpler in a sense, we have a lot of words for a lot of meanings. But then when you get into languages that have multi-layers for one meaning, see, we have many meanings for one word. But, or, or excuse me, we have many words for one meaning. But in these type of languages, they have many meanings for one word. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So things get a little bit complex. So what happens naturally is that things get lost in translation. Okay. And so it always cracked me up years ago when I would hear, I don't get it as much as I did years ago, but I used to have people like just really come up and challenge me and write me and tell me, uh, things like, um, uh, things like, uh, Oh sister uh you need to only be reading from the King James Bible because that is the purest form of that is the purest form of um the Bible that's out here and I always laughed when I saw, when I would hear people say that and the reason why it would crack me up and I would laugh is for the simple fact that the Bible wasn't written in King James. <laughs> Which is, you know, was which was the English, which, you know, King, you know, the story of King James, you know, he was the king, um, the United Kingdom, uh, the daughter of, of uh, Queen, Queen Mary from Scotland. OK. And so the if you want to talk about purest form of scriptures, then you would have to say that it would be the Hebrew slash Arabic and Greek, because that's what the original books, epistles, letters, were written in. And so if you want to find out what was lost in translation, it's not going to the King James Version. Um, Now, Mark, I do understand that uh, there there were actual, and, and there have been so many different translations of what we call the Holy Bible, and there have been even more things lost in translation. For me, myself, and this is my personal opinion, I have taught and have, and the people that I have trained over the years and mentored, I have taught to stay, stay clear, uh, steer clear of certain versions of the Bible that really begin to not only just water down, some translations actually remove words, and then others, like the message, tend to take what is holy and try to form it into a novel. And when you take, when you do that, you can really begin to miss key elements of what God is speaking in that moment. So yes, there are some translations out there that I would say stay away from, okay? King James is definitely not one of those, but there are other translations out there like the English Standard Version, some parts of the New Living Translation even, even though I know that there are some times that even that can be iffy. Um, the Amplify can be very complicated, especially for new beginners because uh, it are ha- new believers and because it has so much complexity within those parentheses. Which and the the cool thing about the Amplified Bible is that it 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 tends to try to give all the proper reference to whatever the Greek or the Hebrew word was, and that's the reason why you have so many parentheses in the Amplified Bible. Um, so it's a good study tool. To kind of get the full understanding of what that particular scripture or verses is, is saying. But nevertheless, to say that the English Bible of any sorts, no matter what translation it is, is the purest form is just simply untrue. OK, now I study Hebrew and I've studied it for years and um, I love Hebrew. And. I study Greek when I have to. It's not one of my favorite languages, but when I want to get an understanding of things that have been said in the New Testament, um, I do cross over into understanding what was the Greek translation of that particular scripture. So, you know, if I want to go into depth, I will cross over into uh, the Greek language, but it's not one of my forte's. Okay, however Hebrew is, I love Hebrew, all right, so saying all that to say to kind of I'm building a background, so to speak, or platform for you all to understand what we're going to be talking about tonight when we talk about different words, like for instance, the rapture, which again is a is a word that it was derivative from the Greek word herpazo, which was used by Paul himself and first Thessalonians, okay, so. Starting with the beginning of the rapture, we're going to go, you know, like I said, everything I'm going to tell you, everything I'm talking in these, these teachings is scripture based. Okay. And I, again, just like I did in the first half, I challenge you to research, to open your Bibles. Don't just take my word for it. Follow along with me. Open your Bibles, read these scriptures for yourself. Do some research because some of the stuff we talk about is historic accounts. But do research, you know, don't be afraid to cross over a little bit and look words up in Greek, look them up in Hebrew, whatever the case may be, so that you can have the full understanding of what is transpiring. Too many times in the 21st century church, I found one of the biggest errors in 21st century church is that we just simply go after what everybody else says. Uh, Those of you who have followed our ministry, you've heard me say for years and years and years, like, I don't read books. And when I say I have some books, I have a very small collection of books that was led strictly by the Holy Spirit that God, you know, ordained for me to read. Um, And I have them. They're part of my collection on my bookshelf. And it's one little area of the entire bookshelf that is dedicated to books um, that I own. Okay, But I am a um obsessor even if I can even use that word when it comes to the scriptures. I can tell you I've got all kinds of Bibles and translations. I have the Septuagint, I have Apocryphas, I have um the Torah, I have you know everything. Hebrew breakdowns, I mean I'm an obsessor when it comes to the word of God. I'm fascinated with the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I love to teach the Word of God. It's something that God instilled in me. He gave it to me. I can't say that I've had it my whole life because it's not a true statement, but it is something that he has given to me. And he anointed me and came to me uh, eight years, eight, nine years ago now and told me he was going to anoint me to be able to teach his word and that he would give me knowledge and increase my knowledge of his word in him so that I could present it to you all. And that's, I love to do that. I love to help people to understand the word of God because it is not enough teachers out there today. I mean, we had some great teachers that many of them have gone home to be with the Lord. They have and those teachers I have listened to and I have thrived off of in my younger years of ministry. Um, But in today's society, it is very hard to find proper teachers. Everything is just great. We have great orators, people who use philosophy and they air tickle you and they stir your emotions with, you know, music and lights and all of that stuff. But there's no solid root teaching of the word of God anymore. It's very rare. It's very rare to find it. So anyway, so I enjoy what I do. Okay. But it is a challenge to you listening. Um, and those who are here today or tonight in this teaching, because I want you to get into your word, open up your Bible and see this stuff for yourself and grasp it and let the Holy Spirit give you revelation in regards to it. OK, so let's let's talk about um, we started off talking about herpazo and what it means. Right. And so let's talk about the first. Let's start with the first time. Um, we hear this word harpazo that was turned into or where we get the term rapture is mentioned. And it's mentioned, of course, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 15. And we're going to go from uh, 15 to 18. Okay, and we're going to talk about the rapture church. So it starts off, remember, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, okay? together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. All right. Very popular scripture, right? And this is the core foundation of where we base the rapture off of, okay? It is actually... um, This is where the word herpazo comes in, okay? Which is in verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That word caught up is herpazo. Or will we get rapture? To be caught up, all right? There was even a song years ago by Anita Baker that was literally called Rapture, okay? And it wasn't talking about the biblical rapture. (laughs) It was a love song. But anyways, So that's where we see the word herpazo mentioned for the first time, okay? Now this, you know, Paul was given these mysteries about the rapture. I'm going to call it the rapture because we know it is, okay? But the... Resurrection of the dead was not something that was new, that was only given in the New Testament. In fact, the resurrection of the dead was promised all the way back multiple times. We're not going to go off into that tonight, but you can find that in your own studies multiple times in the Old Testament. It was something that had been prophesied and talked about. We can even find it, um, even in Daniel at the end of Daniel, and in fact. Um, there was a, I'm going to call it a cult belief, even during the time that Jesus was walking the earth, um, the Nicolaitans who taught that the resurrection of the dead was not going to take place um, or that it had already, you know, and, Je- and not Jesus, excuse me, Paul even talks about don't let anyone tell you that it's already taken place. Remember that scripture? That's also in Thessalonians because he said, you know, that the resurrection of the dead and the coming of the Lord will not come until the great apostasy comes first and then the man of sin is revealed. So there was there was a group, a sect of, of these Nicolaitans that were teaching that the resurrection of the dead was not true. Jesus actually speaks out against them in regards to that. And he even mentions in it and when addressing um, the churches in the book of Revelation in the first three chapters. Okay, so the resurrection of the dead was nothing new. That was something that had been prophesied, uh, coming and happening from the Old Testament on. But the new mystery added on to this resurrection of the dead event was this thing that was the catching away, and the mystery was that that when. the dead in Christ rise for first again. These are this is the resurrection of the dead. Again, a prophecy that had been out around for a long time that Paul is referencing to. Once he's addressing the church of Thessalonica in chapter in First Thessalonians four, he adds to that that there's an additional one, additional mystery or additional I say um, promise that has been revealed, and that is when. Those who have died, and that's what he's referencing asleep. That's an asleep as an asleep unto death. This isn't a and, and and I don't want to get off into all of that, but that's another thing that is out there. People believe that when we die, we stay in the sleeping state, that we don't go into heaven or into hell, but that we stay in a sleep-like state until uh the trumpet sounds and the resurrection of the dead takes place but the easy part to debunk that that is not true because we have had way too many people who have had what they call near death experiences who are both saved and not saved okay and have gone into both heaven and hell and have come back to report it and uh, there have been multiple accounts of seeing other loved ones in heaven Um, some have even seen the apostles or saints of old in heaven and children in heaven, you know, boarded children, children who have died, so on and so forth. so so it's too many accounts that um, there isn't a sleeping state, okay? In fact, even Jesus himself says that it's appointed for man to die once and then after this judgment, right? So there is a judgment that happens, either you go into heaven into paradise. And into hell again. And, and just to add this into because I don't want to steer off too far, but I want to fill you guys with as much information as possible. Um, so you can write this down, so you can study it, you know. But even Jesus on the cross, right? Remember the thief on the cross? He says, like, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, right? What does Jesus say to him? He says, I tell you this day, he said, This day you will be with me in paradise. So the thief didn't die and go into a state of sleep. He was in paradise with Christ. He went into heaven with Jesus that day that he died. Okay. So, so that's just to debunk that part that people believe that we've gone to sleep. So when, the, when, when the scripture is talking about those who have gone to sleep, it is a sleep unto death. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. I was going to add another scripture to that, but in fact, I'm going to add, you remember when Jesus rose Jairus's daughter and he walks in and, um, They tell, they tell Jesus, you know, they tell Jairus and Jesus that, that his daughter has already died. And and Jesus tells them, fear not, the child is not dead, but only sleeping. And then they get like all upset with him. They're like, who's this guy? You know, they want to like throw him. And then Jesus throws them out. It's like such one of my favorite stories, because they're like, they've got the funeral percussions playing and everything. Jesus like kicks everybody out. He's like, you know what? I'm done. Get out. And then he goes in there and he speaks. Um, I'm trying to think if it was Greek or you know, it was Aramaic. Talitha and which is rise, little girl. And then he brings her, and she comes out, and she's alive. Okay, so I just wanted to put that one out there too because that, that's one of my funniest. I love that story of Jesus. Okay, so so coming back around. <laughs> so we talk about in First Thessalonians chapter. Four, Four, verse 15 through 18. We know that, okay, the sleep is sleeping unto death. Um, There is a resurrection of the dead. But right as the resurrection of the dead has happened with the trumpet of the Lord, okay, the dead in Christ rise first. And then Paul continues in verse 17 by saying, then those we who are alive, so those who are alive, not those who have a slap, who are sleeping, who have... Who have fallen asleep, not those, but those who are alive and remaining, meaning that we are conscious, we're alive, we're breathing, we're conscious. Once that that resurrection of the dead happens and takes place, then the rest of us who are in Christ, all right, we are caught up, we are hypazo. Again, puzzle means to snatch away, to seize, right? To take. Together with them, who is them? Those who had been resurrected out of their graves. Those who came out out of their graves, who were in Christ. So they come up out of their graves. Can you imagine that day? Wow. Amazing, right? They come up out of their graves. And then... Right as we, before they go up, we we are also transformed and we go up with them, right? And where are we going? He says, we meet, we go into the clouds, right? To meet the Lord who is where he's already in the air. He's already up in the sky. He's already, and that's very important because we're going to talk about some things tonight, okay? So he's already up in the sky. Remember that, all right? Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So it's an encouragement that Paul gives us to say that this day is coming. We have something to look forward to. All right. It's very clear to people who say there is no rapture. There, It's clear. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be a purpose, snatched away. Seas to go up in there. We're going to meet those who have. We're going up with those who have been resurrected from the dead. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Okay. So there is absolutely a hokazo event. Okay. The other scripture that, that Paul references this to. Or this is in reference to with 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 18. 3. 18, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start off at verse 51. We're just going to do two verses, 51, or excuse me, not 51, or 50, verse 50 through 55. We're going to go through five verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 55. Okay, you got that? All right, so this is what that says. It says, now this day, I say, brethren, That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. So there's another, there's a mystery right there. We shall not all sleep. Again, there's that word sleep. What is he talking about? We shall not all die. All of us will not see death. Okay. But we shall be changed. We shall all be changed any moment. And the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, but the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So once again, he is referencing the the resurrection of the dead, which again, this is a promise that goes back into the Old Testament. All right. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So he's talking about the transformation of our bodies. So, so when this corruptible, again, I'm saying it again. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your victory? See? So, so it's an overcoming of death. We are all not going to taste death. Some of us will live to see or to hear that trumpet sounding. And then we will see the dead in Christ rise first. Okay. We will see them. Those who are asleep. And then in the moment he says, in the twinkling of an eye, they have measured that is like a millisecond. Okay. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and then we shall be changed. So so those who are remaining. So once again, dead in Christ happened first. First part, well, the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise first, and then those who are alive and remaining will be transformed right there and then. And once again, we will all meet Christ in the air. So let's talk about that last trumpet. OK, let's I want to start there first. This, we're in First Corinthians chapter 15, where it actually says at the last trumpet. And remember, we're talking about these the, the mid-tribulation rapture believers who say that this scripture right here is the proof that at the last trumpet, that is when the harpazo takes place. So let me tell you why this has, that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 has nothing to do with the trumpets in the book of Revelation. First and foremost, let me explain to you that Paul, when he wrote this, or let's just say, let's start with John. Let's just start by saying that by the time John had written the book of Revelation while he was exiled on the island of Patmos, Paul had been dead about 30 years. So, Paul the Apostle died roughly somewhere around 67 BC, or excuse me, not BC, AD, Anno Domini, which now they have it some kind of CEE, or I know they've changed it because Anno Domini means after death, which is Latin, and that would pertain to a different timetable after the death of Christ, and BC means before Christ. So now it's like, before common era and then I guess something common era post common era it's it's terrible what they've done but anyways that's a whole nother story for another time the point is is this Paul died somewhere around 67 AD okay that and Paul uh I believe he was decapitated um and and so the book of Revelation was written around ninety-four AD. So roughly, not quite, but roughly about 30 years later. So there's no way Paul could be referencing to John's book of Revelation at the last trumpet. So people would say, well, no, that's you know, he could have said the same. There's no way. There is nothing indicating anything about a 21 judgment great tribulation prior to John writing the book of Revelation. We don't see Paul referencing anything of the sorts I mean we talk the closest person to it at that point besides Jesus talking about Daniel is Daniel himself okay that talks about a beast coming but even in fact we don't hear anything about a trumpet sounding so he could not be referencing to John so people say, well well maybe he just Well, that doesn't make any sense because he could have easily, you know, heard or was given a mystery, right? He was after all, he said, I'll reveal the mystery to you. Well, perhaps the Lord gave him this mystery of there would be this last trumpet and God told him it would be a last trumpet. And then it happens to perfectly coincide with what John is talking about in the book of Revelation. Let me tell you why that's not true either. So let's talk about what was Paul talking about and referencing to the last Trump. I will tell you, it is very, very, very interesting. And some of you have probably, I'm sure, have already heard this teaching, but I know there'll be plenty of you that have not. So let's talk about the Jewish holidays. So the Jewish, and and, and really, let me let me correct my wording on that. Because there's no Jewish holiday. It's really the high holy days that were ordained and appointed by God Himself um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. Okay. There are spring feast and then there are fall feast, as we know. Okay? And so the spring feast is where we get like Passover and um uh Rosh Hashanah um, which is first fruits and um Shavuot which is uh Pentecost um and so and then we have the fall feast which is um okay so there's the, the the what we what is now considered a Jewish holiday okay which was never a Jewish holiday the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah or the head of the year was not originally called Rosh Hashanah and so I don't refer to it as such. Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, meaning like a new year. But that day, which is the, the first day of the seventh month, the month in Hebrew calendar is Paschri, was actually called Yom Turah. And that meant the blowing of the trumpet. Okay? So the full feast is Yom Tudorah or Rosh Hashanah. Then we go into Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. And then we move on to Sukkot or booze or tabernacles. Okay. All right. So some of you probably, maybe the majority of you know about these. You've heard them at least once. You may not understand them, but most people know what they are. So Christ. Actually, without going into too you know many details and veering off too far off subject, Christ's birth, death, resurrection, actually and fulfilled, um, paralleled with the spring feast. That's the reason why he he died and 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 resurrected during that time. Okay, the spring feast again being Passover, which is unleavened bread. Um, res- he 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 resurrected on um, first fruits and you know and so and then Pentecost the day that um, uh, the the first century church or the disciples carried in the upper room and received the Holy Spirit that was the fulfillment of Shavuot okay so the ones that have not been fulfilled yet is the full feast which many of uh, the Biblical, rabbinical scholars who study Hebrew and the feast and all that believe that the return, the rapture, and the return, millennial reign, second coming, and millennial reign of Christ will fulfill the fall feast. Again, we're not going to go off into all those details. That's another teaching for another time. But what I want to point out to you, I want to talk about Yom Torah, or what you know as Rosh Hashanah, that happens in the fall. One of the most important feasts of all times. If you want to know a little bit more about the fall feast, you can go yourself into Leviticus chapter 23. For those of you who want to write that down, the entire chapter breaks down the feast. Leviticus chapter 23. You will find those details. So in the seventh month, the first month, okay, let's back up. Let's go to the sixth month of the Hebrew calendar, which is called Elul, okay? Okay. So there are 29 days in the month of Elul because the Hebrew calendar is based off of a lunar calendar or the cycles of the moon. And the cycle of the moon is about 29 and a half days. Okay. And so Elul is the sixth month. And it is during this month that in a sense, it is a month of preparation mentally and spiritually for what is going to take place in the 7th month starting with Ashri 1 which is what is called Yam Teruah or Rosh Hashanah but I'm going to push away I want you guys to understand that it's Rosh Hashanah but it's not it's Yam Teruah, the blowing the last trump the last trumpet okay so for 28 days in the month of Elul in preparation for the coming of the most one of the most holiest days or holiest seasons, OK, which is the, which starts with Yom Tudorah and ends with tabernacles or Sukkot. They blow the show, they being the priest, they would blow the shofar every single day for 28 days. Now, I'm going to pause there. Now, the interesting thing is that when the months would cross over from one month to another, how they would count time in ancient Israel is, or with the ancient Israelites, because they had lots of different lands, but with the ancient Israelites, is that they would count it based off of the cresting of the moon. Again, this was um, a lunar calendar that they based it off of. And so how they would determine the cycle of the moon that would begin the new month is, of course, you have the new moon, then you've got the the first quarter, the half moon, the last quarter, I mean, the full moon, then you got the last quarter, you got all these different phases of the moon. So what would begin the first month after the new moon would be the cresting of the first half of the moon. Okay, that little slither, the thumbnail, so to speak. There's another nickname for it, is a thumbnail. Some people call it God's thumbnail when they see the cresting of the moon. So how they would observe it, of course, it would have to one be a clear night, and the priest would have to go out into the stand out on the the wall, the watchtower, and or on the wall or observe observatory tower, what have you, observation site, whatever it was. Sometimes it was just a hill. (laughs) and they would have to go out there and look. And if they, he saw the cresting of the moon, he would have to get another witness, a second witness to agree with him that they both saw the same thing, that that was the cresting of the moon. And when they both agreed to it, then they would blow the shofar, sound the alarm, you know, and say, this is the beginning, the marking of a new Calendar month, okay. So just so you know that. But the interesting thing about the, cre- the the when the cresting would take place, no one knew the day or the hour that it would take place. So they would always be watching once that new new moon. Because remember, the new moon you can't really see it; it's completely dark. They'd be out there watching every night, looking for the cresting of the moon until they would see it. So they didn't know the exact day or hour that they would actually be able to see. That cresting, but once they knew, then they would be able to sound the trumpet. So, back to Elul. so again, right before the most important, you know, feast of the year kind of thing, would happen. There would be this preparation for it, and that would be done during the month of the Lord. So, every day during the in the month of the Lul, they would blow this trumpet, and the the trumpet or the shofar, I should say, would be a Reminder that listen, Yom Teruah is coming. The full feast, the high holy days is coming. We must prepare. We must prepare ourselves for the most holiest day, okay? And so the last trumpet would be blown on the 28th day. Because on the 29th day, it would be a a sense of silence, a, a time of silence, and preparing for. Teshari one, okay, or Yom Turura when the trumpet would be blasted one last time. And then it would go completely silent for the days of awe, which was 10 days of prayer and fasting between Yom Teruah, or what you call Rosh Hashanah today, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, okay. Holy, 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 holy. So it was be very, very holy. So no one knew the day or the hour. And Yom Tudorah was the last trumpet. Now, again, I said to you that um, this was a reference to the last trumpet. Paul was shown a mystery and that many scholars today believe in the fact that the the rapture, uh, tribulation, return, second coming, and millennial reign of Christ will fulfill the fall feast since his birth, uh, death, and resurrection. Or I should say, death, resurrection, and and Pentecost fulfill the the spring feast. Okay, so. In addition to that, I would like to add not going off into, I know we've kind of gone off deep into the fall feast because you have to understand the connection. The very powerful thing about Elul and the sixth month, and 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 we can just go, I probably do need to do a whole nother teaching on this because we're technically in the sixth day as we speak. It's been roughly about 6,000 years since Adam, which is the sixth day. The seventh day Shabbat or the Sabbath is the millennial reign of Christ and it is also a time of rest because God blessed the seventh day and called it holy, right? And so the the sixth month Elul was a time that the king would be out in the field. In other words, he would leave his premises and he would Surprise the people and go out into the field and meet them out in the field, what they were doing, their day to day tasks. He would go out and, and, and he was a king still, but he was a king for his people. He would meet with his people. Sometimes they would be surprised, at being here, and you'd want to be caught working. You didn't want to be caught just lounging around when the king would visit you. But it was during a lull. And while they were blowing those trumpets saying, okay, the time's coming to prepare for the seventh month that the king would be out in the field visiting his people. But at that last trumpet, the king would return to his throne into his premises and to his, his sanctuary, and he would once again become the judge. Very significant, isn't it? So once that last once that last trumpet sounds, he would now return to his throne as the judge. No longer just your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And I shouldn't say that as a comparison, but, you know, but that now he's he's back on his throne and everything. There's all this uh, severity and his judgment at that point. Okay. so what Paul was in fact referencing to was actually he was making a comparison comparison to la, to the last trumpet to yam torah which is the last trumpet in the fall feast okay so that's what he's saying so what we understand based off of the mystery that Paul has wrote or wrote to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and and in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 even though 1 Corinthians chapter 4 Um, or uh, so let's say they both they kind of add a little bit more in chapter four but what they both say to us is that there is a trumpet a shofar a blowing of a shofar or trumpet whichever one that precedes the dead in Christ rising the resurrection of the dead and then those who are alive and remaining transforming in the moment in a twinkling of an eye Transforming our bodies going from being a corruptible stage to an incorruptible stage, okay? And then we go to meet the Lord in the air afterwards, okay? So, we know just based off of those two scriptures that a harpazo is real. It is real, it is written, it is detailed. It is said more than once that it will take place. Okay, so going into um, when it takes place, that's where things get really, really complicated. Now, we just started talking about that mid trip. So, that is when they say that it's based off of that scripture, the last trumpet means it is going to happen during. the seventh trumpet of the 21 judgments that is a misinterpretation and it's just a very simple misunderstanding. Now, I I take it for a grain of salt. I really do. Um, people who who teach it and believe it, I I don't get angry at them. I don't want any of you to get angry with them. I don't want the ones who are listening and believe that to get angry because. It's just a simple misunderstanding. It really is. Where it becomes a problem is when we've got the people who take what they've been taught and what they've heard without studying and understanding it for themselves, and they begin bashing and condemning other believers who don't believe the same time frame as them. That's when things become dangerous, and that is something that Jesus really warned us about. About coming against your brethren, calling them fools, saying Raka, he said they would be in danger of hellfire. So you really want to watch how you present these things to your brethren, okay? To me, it's just a very simple misunderstanding, okay? The interesting thing that I will say that the mid-tribulation believers have right is that the church goes up or the bride of Christ is harpozzled or caught away right before the three and a half year wrath. And that is accurate. But it's only accurate because there is no seven year tribulation. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. There Again, and this is what we talked about in the first half, There is a seven-year covenant, but there there is only one tribulation. It is called the Great Tribulation, okay? And we're going to talk about the word tribulation next. There is the Great Tribulation, which again, as we went in the first part, is designated to three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. Okay. All right. Moving on. The next scripture I want to talk about in when it takes place and we're going to we're going to overlap when the rapture takes place to breaking down the word tribulation. We're going to go into scripture of Jesus words himself. Okay, Written in red. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to start off at verse 29. So we're going to go smack dab in the middle. We're not going to cover all the other stuff that Jesus talks about when the disciples come to him and say, what is the sign of the end of the age and and his return? Okay, we're going to go straight to uh, what Jesus begins to talk about, because this is where we're going to talk about how the the post with the post tribulation rapture believers get their scriptures from. Okay. This is one of the most. Now, they may have a couple of other scriptures, but I'm picking out the ones that are just like they're what they consider to be their hardcore evidence. OK, so Matthew 24, verse 29 through 31 first states, Jesus says this. immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay. And so and so that is uh, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. So we're stopping there. All right, so let's first cover this. Let's talk about the first sentence he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. All right. So when we hear the translation word tribulation, the, the immediately, immediately, We have gone to the fact that he's talking about the great tribulation of the 42 months. Okay. And that's very understandable. Considering everything that has been written in that chapter. Uh, The cross references for Matthew chapter 24. For those of you who are taking notes. Is also Luke 21 uh, verses 25 through 28. And Mark 13 verse 24. So we're not going to go over those. They're just basically parallel of what I just read. Um, But I wanted you to have that scripture reference as to parallel of what Jesus was talking about. Okay. So you'll have that. All right. So here is where we start talking about translation. All right. Because, and again, it makes absolute sense because if we back up to verse 15, he's talking about the great tribulation of Daniel, the prophet, the abomination of, of desolation, then we scroll down or we not scroll down, but we go down to, you know, verse 29 in our Bibles or scrolling if you're on your phones and we'll see that he goes and immediately after the tribulation of those days, right? Then the sun will be darkened. But again, it's translation issues. Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation. He's talking to a crowd. He's telling them all the signs of the things to come. And I'm not saying that he's not putting it in necessary order, but there's something that's very specific about what Jesus tells us in these verses of 29 and 31 that gives you all the evidence you need of when the rapture or the hapazal actually takes place. First, I want to tell you is that in that sentence where he said immediately after the tribulation of those days... He's actually not even referencing the tribulation. So so in Greek, let's talk about the word tribulation. The word tribulation in Greek is Philippus, okay? And Philippus means affliction, tribulation, pressure, and testing, okay? Interestingly, remember I talked about how the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Matthew, we're talking about Matthew, Matthew actually being originally written in Hebrew and then translated in Greek, which is very interesting. Okay. But Philippus or tribulation is actually mentioned 45 times in the New Testament and it has eight different formats. 45 times. We can't even find that in the English. In fact, I'll tell you just for the sake of argument, but I don't like to use the word argument. The word, the English word tribulation is actually mentioned 25 times in the entire 66 books of the King James Bible. And in the 25 times that it's mentioned in the 66 books, it is not referencing the abomination of desolation or the reign of the beast. There are some times where it is, but most of the time it isn't. It's like three times that it's even referencing the beast. But when we get into, just to talk about how things are multi-layered, when we get into the Greek alone, tribulation, the is mentioned 45 times in just the New Testament. And it has eight different formats. And when they're referencing tribulation, they're talking about when you come under some form of testing or persecution. OK, this can reference uh, a tribulation or testing or persecution or affliction, which is the first format of the It means affliction. OK, it can be a group. It can be a tribe, a nation, or it can be an individual. Okay, remember there's eight different formats. And so when Philippus, which is the proper word that this particular translation, uh, when Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, Philippus, he's talking about a, a, a affliction, a testing. You have to understand that. Even now, we are currently in a season of tribulation. Our brothers and sisters in the underground churches in in Syria, listen, let's just put it this way. Syria, the Syrian Christians have been going through tribulation for years, starting back in 2011 when the Arab Spring started. Our brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria, where they're killing thousands of Christians a year, burning down churches, burying in people alive, setting people on fire, men, women, and children, okay? Total genocide. They have been in tribulation for many years. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea have been in tribulation for many years. And the underground church in Iran, that's sitting at a staggering 8 million as we currently speak and growing is going through tribulation as we speak. And we can go on and on and on, okay? So it's a, t- a pressure test, like a p- being pressed on all sides. That is a form of tribulation. Most of the people in America, we don't know what tribulation is. We've got it good. Even on our bad days, we still have it good to most people in most countries. But the persecution of the saints is now coming at our doors. It's just trickling in, but now we're about to roll over into some some massive times and that's another conversation for another day. But you have to understand what God or what the scripture is referencing when it talks about tribulation. It is not all talking about the 42 months of the reign of the beast. Okay? But moving on from there, let's just talk about what Jesus said. He goes on to say the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then he says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and though then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels. Listen to this. So, this is where I want to get to. I'm going to go through this whole thing, we're going to break it down. He will send. His angels with the great sound of a trumpet, there's that shofar, there's that trumpet again, right? That we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. With the great sound of a trumpet, Jesus says, right? And they will gather his elect from the four winds. Four winds meaning like the four corners, north, south, east, and west, meaning the entire planet. That's what that means when we're talking about four winds. And from and he goes. From one end of heaven to the other, okay? And when he's talking about heaven, you have to remember the word Shemayim. Shemayim is, is Hebrew for heaven. Shemayim is plural. There is more than one la- layer to heaven. So he's not talking about gathering the people that are in the third heaven in paradise, okay? He's talking about, the, in fact, the atmosphere and the where the sun and the clouds and all of that is, that's, or I shouldn't say the sun and clouds, but the sunset and the clouds, that is considered the first level of Shemayan, the first level of heaven. So what does he say? They will, you'll collect them from the north, south, east, and west. That's what that's saying, the four winds. And from one end of heaven, the sky, to the next, okay? From one end of the sky to the next. Isn't that beautiful? I just, I just absolutely love that. So, what is Jesus doing here he's He's actually confirming that there will be a harpazo he did He just confirmed that. but not only does he confirm a harpazo because remember they're collecting he's collecting the the angels with the sound of a trumpet. Is collecting his chosen, his elect from one end of the heavens to the next. So basically, In other words, they're coming. You're going to see them collected up in the air, in the Shemayim, in that first level of heaven. Because where is Jesus? He says in verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. He's not talking about him being on the throne. He's already on the throne. That doesn't need to be a sign. He's talking about in the sky. The first level of Shemayim in the sky, just like Paul said, we would see him, okay? And that he said, what? We will be caught up together with them and meet him in the clouds, in the air, in the Shemayim, in the heaven, okay? The first layer of heaven in the sky. You following me with all of that? So there's a trumpet, there's the angels, they gather the people from one end to the other and they're up in the sky. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so now let's talk about when it will happen. Because again, post-tribbers say, this is when it'll happen. He says, after the tribulation of those days. But let's talk about why that's not true. Jesus gives a very clear indicator of when it happens. And it's an indicator that, is not anything that's new. It is actually very old. It goes back to old prophecies. What does he say? In those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give her light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken, okay? So he gives us an, a clue as to when it'll happen, okay? Sounds familiar? Well, we can go all the way to the Old Testament. The story or the indicator, I shouldn't say the story, the sign of the moon turning to, to blood, okay, which indicates a lunar eclipse and the sun being darkened, which indicates a solar eclipse. And then the stars falling from heaven. Now, that can be a meteor shower. Some people say that the stars are, which can also be referenced to angels falling, being thrown down to earth. We find that similar. And Revelation chapter 12 was Satan is kicked out of heaven. He takes a third of the stars with him, okay? But it can also just mean a meteor shower as well, okay? Because we have to understand the language that is being used during this time when they're trying to explain things, all right? So, um, so and and also the heavens being shaken. So there's just this, this massive shaking that has gone on as well. Okay, so so, but again, we find that this is not uncommon, um, to the Old Testament, cause in Joel chapter three, um, and I'm not going to, well, I, should, I guess I can go there. Joel chapter three, um, verse 15, it talks about the sun and the moon growing dark. It talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Again, in fact, I want to even remind you that in Genesis uh, Chapter two, I believe it is, the Lord tells us that he made the sun, the moon, and the stars for appointed times and seasons. In fact, the word, the proper word for it is the moed. That's what the Hebrew word is. And moed should have been properly translated into like omens or signs. Okay, but when we think of signs and seasons, we typically think of like spring, winter, summer, fall kind of thing, but that is not what he was referencing to when he said he made the sun, the moon, and the stars. They were also for, they were for seasons, true enough, but uh, but the seasons of the moon and the sun doesn't necessarily determine spring, winter, or fall. He said it would be the signs for the appointed seasons, appointed times, okay? So that's what he was referencing to that he would make them for. And so, again, we see that again in multiple scriptures. And again, I'm not going to go over, over all of them, but um, Joel 2, 31, um, again, in fact, a lot of you all know this scripture in Joel 2, 30, 2 31, uh, because that is a very common scripture. Um, in fact, when you go back into verse 28, it is the part where Joel is talking about God is saying he would, it will come to pass in the last days that he will pour his spirit out upon all flesh. But when you go down to verse 31 or verse 30, he says, and I will show you wonders in the heavens and in heavens is plural, Shemayim, because Joel was written in Hebrew, the heavens and the earth, singular, which is, which is Hebrew for earth is singular and Shemayim is plural. OK, it says, and blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood when before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the great and terrible day of the Lord is what we now call in the New Testament, the great tribulation. But in the Old Testament, it was referenced to as the great and terrible day of of the Lord and or and or Jacob's trouble. So remember, I told you that some of this stuff is is, is is old in this sense. Um the powerful thing about not to go off too too much too far, the interesting thing about the old testament is that when you look at the old testament prophets, the major and the minor ones like Joel, um, you find that the the Jacob's trouble, which is the uh the three and a half years that we talk about. Um, the millennial reign of Christ, um, the coming of Mashiach, the Messiah, all of that was prophesied with them. They saw the coming of Mashiach, when he would be or where he would be born, how he would be born. Um, They saw uh, the millennial reign. They saw the Jacob's trouble, the great and terrible day of the Lord, or what we call the great tribulation, But what is so powerful, and it always just trips me out even when I say it, is that none of the prophets saw the church. That was hidden from all of them. And even though the prophets of the Old Testament knew about the resurrection of the dead, none of them were also shown what we call the herpazo, because there were two things that were kept a secret from the difference between the old and the New Testament slash covenant. And that was the church. So the church age was not shown to any of the prophets of old. And and if it was, then they weren't allowed to write about it at least. And, And then we get over into the New Testament and not only is the church age born, the dispensation or age of grace, which we have been in for the last two millennia, but also the herpazo of that church which is also was also a mystery so very interesting okay how so God played that out i hope that you find that just as uh, awesome as i do so the blood and the moon turning to blood and the sun being darkened and the heavens being shaken is nothing new it is found in Joel chapter 2 verses 30 and 31 and Joel 3 uh verse we find Peter repeating it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. We also find it in, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. I'm just giving you some of those scriptures so you can cross-reference it. Um, there's actually a few other scriptures in the Old Testament in Isaiah. Uh, there's about two more in Isaiah um, that reference this this wrath, this great and terrible day of this Lord that, that comes with the moon being blood and the sun being darkened and the earth being shaken, okay? So there's multiple references in the Old Testament um, and there's a few, a couple in the New Testament. Um, the first one is mentioned by Jesus himself. The second one is mentioned by Peter in Acts. And the third is mentioned by John, the revelator, okay? So Jesus tells us when the herpazo takes place. He says it'll happen when the sun is darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, right, in the clouds. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So again, going to the post trippers, they believe that when he's coming, that he's coming back, that he's returning. But actually the sign is in heaven because He, there's no point in him coming to earth. If he's, okay, let's put it this way. If he's returning to earth when he's referencing this, if he's returning to earth, then why would he send the angels to gather the elect to go and to meet him into heaven? Into heaven, right? Basically, that's the part that I didn't want to go into my personal um, belief system or my personal opinion in the beginning because it just doesn't make sense why would the elect be, if Jesus is returning to earth, why would we have to be caught up to meet him in heaven to turn around and come right back? And more more importantly, where is the, the supper of the lamb in the midst of that? Because we know when he comes back to earth, he's coming back to, you know, stop Armageddon, throw the antichrist and the false prophet into the fiery pit, and he reigns on earth for a thousand years. That is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's a disconnect there, okay? There's an absolute disconnect there at that point. So he's not saying that he's returning to earth. It's really matching what Paul is saying that we're going to meet him in the clouds. It doesn't say that we return to earth immediately. We do eventually turn to earth. Return to earth during the second coming. That's where Jude in Jude chapter one, he says, I saw the Lord coming, returning with 10,000,000 of the saints. And actually, Jude is quoting Enoch, which is another book that was not included in the Bible. He's actually quoting Enoch, who said that. OK, so there is a so when we talk about when the harpazo is going to take place, and Jesus gives us a great description, and that description is also matching uh, the Old Testament descriptions in Joel and in and in Acts. That excuse me, Joel and Acts as well. But what I wanted to say, Old Testament for Joel and Isaiah, no, all both of them encountering or, or indicating that the great and terrible day of the Lord would happen. Right after the moon turns to blood, which, again, represents a lunar eclipse and the sun being darkened, referencing a solar eclipse. And then there's a earthquake, a shaking that happens. Okay, And and so when we go into the book of Revelation and we look for the 21 judgments, again, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls that John is indicating um, takes place. There is only one time in all the 21 judgments that we find the exact description that Jesus indicated in Matthew chapter four as the time of when the elect are gathered from the four corners of the earth and taken up. And that is in Revelation chapter six, and it starts at verse 12. So we want to turn with me there. Um, I'm picking up at verse 12 again, Revelation chapter six, verse 12 through 17. OK, and let's just go there real quick. So it says, and I looked, and this is John talking and I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. So there's your shaking, right? Massive shaking. And then what happens during this shaking? And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. That's a total solar eclipse, not even a partial, but a total. And the moon became like blood. That's a total lunar eclipse. Okay. What happens after that? And the stars fall, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Continues. Then the sky receded like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Why? Why? and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand?" So does that not parallel with Matthew 24, 29 through 31? We find every characteristic there. We find an earthquake, a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, the stars fall into the earth, right? But we also see that the sky rolls back like a scroll, right? What did Jesus say in verse 30 of Matthew 24? He said, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. What else did he say? And all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. I mean, coming with power and great glory. So they're mourning. They see him in the sixth seal and they run. And they say they run and hide in the caves and in the mountains. And they ask the rocks to fall on them. Why? Because they want to hide from his face. So there's something that happens that the sky breaks open and they see into heaven. They see it. There's an event that has taken place. Right? There's an event that has taken place where all the tribes of the earth are able to see into heaven, and they're afraid, they want to run and hide. Some people even go as far as saying as the the belief of saying that the trumpet sounding and the dead in Christ rising first, all of the people coming out of their graves could cause a massive earthquake, and many actually believe that. And when you think about it, that could, you're talking about the ground unraveling, and you're talking about quite a few people. We don't know the thousands or if it's in the millions, we don't know. But we're talking about people who died in Christ from centuries ago, who were buried formally, buried informally. Those who drowned in the sea, Those who were on the side, thrown in the river, buried in a forest or cemetery or underneath a house for that matter, in somebody's backyard. Those who were in Christ. Again, I'm not talking about everyone, but those who were in Christ. Okay? And so the idea that the ground unraveling itself for these bodies that transform is a pretty powerful event. And then we who are alive, we're standing here in consciousness and alive and breathing. All of a sudden, we're suddenly transformed and we shoot up into the air. That's a pretty incredible sight, a pretty frightful sight for those who don't believe or don't have any idea of what the heck is uh, is taking place in front of them. And it could easily, easily cause an earthquake. Okay, and I'm just throwing that out there. But nevertheless, there is an earthquake. The ground shakes. So this is the only time in the 21 judgments that we see a sign in the heavens that, uh, that matches exactly what Jesus said is going to take place Matthew, when he said it in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. And that at that time, he gathers his elect, right? So you're saying, well, you're now you're saying, well, Mina, Well, I don't see anything indicating in Revelation that indicates that he gathers the elect after that. No, but let me tell you what happens after that. We're still dealing with the sixth seal. okay? there's a lot that transpires during the sixth seal. Because after um, we we hear about the cosmic disturbances and the earthquake, and that's pretty much the end of chapter six. And then you go into chapter 7 of Revelation, which we're not going to go into all of that, but basically before the seventh seal is opened, there is four there is four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. Really. <laughs> that also matches what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, right? But something very unique happens in chapter seven, which you can read in your own time. Just again, I'm telling you, go and study it. Because I know some of you listening are like, wow, really? I never knew. Well, that's the reason why we're supposed to study. So something unique happens. The, four, the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds. And then they're commanded um, for nothing to happen until the 144,000 are sealed. So then the 144,000 are sealed in chapter seven and they're dispersed into the earth. But then something powerful happens that John sees. It's all in the same six seal, okay? There is, you have to understand, it's all happening in the same seal. And that is this. And when you go into Revelation chapter seven, starting at verse nine, I'm gonna read that part to you so you guys know. It says, and after these things, this is John saying, I looked, and the things that he's talking about is the fact that he just saw the hundred and forty-four thousand sealed with the seal of God upon their head, and they're they're dispersed upon the earth. Okay, it says, "I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb." clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels around the throne and the elders of the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders answered to me saying, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. And so he said to me, these are the ones who are who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell with them, and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, and the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and lead them to the living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now I wanted to read that. So beautiful. I wanted to go through that whole thing, but I want to go back. John asked a question to the elders, and this is one of the 24 elders. And he says, who are these people that I'm seeing? Mind you, there are thousands, if not millions, and they're all from every nation, he said, every tongue, every tribe, but they all have on white robes and they have these palm branches in their hands. They're waving palm branches, which is a sign of victory in case you did not know, okay? But he tells them, the elder says to him, These are those who come out of the great tribulation. So then that is another scripture that the post-millennialists, the post-tribulation people use. Let's talk about the, the, the terminology there. Actually, when he says come out of the great tribulation, he is actually referencing the great tribulation of the 32 months of the beast. But here's the part that you don't know. What he's actually referencing to remind you, it's re—it's written in Greek. That word come out in Greek, the ek, is really escape. It is the word escape. And remember, even that same word ek that we find in Greek in this is the same word in Luke 21 where Jesus said, Pray you are counted worthy to escape all of these things that are coming. Remember that? He talks about that in Luke 21 when he's referencing the coming troubles upon the land. So that is meaning to escape, to come out, to, to not have to go through, to not endure. It's not a word indicating an endurance. Because when you talk about enduring, it is something that you have to go through. When he said they were coming out, it wasn't with the the terminology of endurance that they had endured the great tribulation, but that they had escaped it. Plus, in reference to, in, in addition, not reference, but in addition to that, we're talking about the sixth seal. John still hasn't even seen the other of uh, 15 judgments yet. They have not been given to him as of yet. He hasn't seen, uh, the mark of the beast. He hasn't seen the false prophet yet. He hasn't seen mystery Babylon or, or its destruction. He hasn't seen the two witnesses yet. He hasn't seen any of that yet. We're talking about the sixth seal. He hasn't been shown anything else yet. So it doesn't even make sense that the elder would tell him they're coming out of great, the great, they're, they're, they've come through, let me put it that way, the great tribulation, which is a 42 month or um, a 42 month um, designated time that John has not even been told about yet. You understand what I'm saying? Doesn't make sense. He's still only on the sixth hill. So, so these are the things that I wanted um to point out to you. And and there's other scriptures that indicate that uh the rapture, the herpazo, or shall I say more so, the church of Jesus Christ also does not go through the tribulation, just going back to the the postmillennialist or post tribulation rapture uh belief people, and I don't know if postmillennialism is in the same category. it's, to me, you might as well not believe in a harpazo if you believe that the church is going through the entire tribulation. there's no point point. and the church being uh caught up in the air to come right back down there's there's no there's no reason for it. we might as well just stay here on earth and just wait for Jesus to come at that point, you know because he's coming back for the millennial right anyways but in First Thessalonians, I know I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between uh, Revelation and First Thessalonians and Corinthians, but in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine, um, and, and ten, I should say, it's the this one scripture that we know, and Paul tells us, and he says, "For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we should live with him for, uh, we should live together with him. So really that first Thessalonians chapter five, nine, and 10 is actually goes hand in hand with first Thessalonians four, 15 through 18, because he's telling us and would obtain salvation, salvation, even though we say we got saved. When we go, uh, whether you're at an altar, whether you're quietly within yourself saying, you know, we're confessing your sins, um, asking Christ into your life, confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. We call that salvation, obtaining salvation, but obtaining salvation is only the first half of it. We have to actually maintain salvation throughout the remainder of our life. And that's why Jesus said um, those who endure to the end shall be saved. The salvation actually comes at the end of your life, okay? And and that's where the layers begin to peel off because the first and foremost thing that you are being saved from is eternal separation from God, which is done through hell and and outer darkness, the lake of fire, okay? But what Paul is saying, he says, he did not appoint us to wrath. Remember in, in Revelation chapter six, When the sky is open, the people are hiding. What are they saying? They're asking the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath. And so I know also some people that that goes back to the mid-tribulation believers. Again, you would have to believe that the tribulation is seven years for it to be a midpoint tribulation. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. Um, because there isn't a seven-year tribulation, we don't see that anywhere in the entire book of Revelation. Indicated again, we do not see that anywhere. All right. However, um, the point is this: what do they? They said the wrath of lamb. Wrath is wrath is wrath. Whether it's the wrath of God, the wrath of Lamb, Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus told Philip, "If you see me, you see the Father." It's the same thing. The point is, it is the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is the great tribulation, okay? And so I know some people say, well, the first half is the wrath of the lamb. The second wrath half, half is the wrath of God and they're basing on the seals. But again, I, the lamb does open up the first seven seals. He does, that is a clear indication. But again, with those 21 judgments, we do not see anywhere in the book of Revelation where it's written that it begins at a seven year period. The only indicator, again, that we see is a 42 month period and that's it, okay? But Paul lets us know we have not been appointed to wrath, but what? To obtain salvation. That goes back to what Jesus said in Luke 21. He said, pray that you're counted worthy to escape. These all of these things that are to come, okay, through our salvation, or excuse me, obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we are awake or asleep, and that sleep is in death, we should live together with Him, okay? So, so that is that. Now, the other thing I want to go into before we close, a couple other things I wanted to indicate. And I hope this has been very enlightening for you with these teachings on this um, thought provoking, challenging you to get into your word and seek deeper, to pray, to allow the Holy Spirit to edify you in all of this. But the two witnesses, I want to just mention them briefly because of a time frame. Um, You will find the story of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Okay, if you want to write that down. The part that I want to talk about is, um, is this, it says, it says in verse, I'm just going to read it. Okay. Verse, verse one of chapter 11, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood and said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside of the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Again, that is indicating a tribulation. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, um, he told them in verse 15, I believe it was, where he said, when you see the abomination of desolation that was mentioned by Daniel, he says, run into the wilderness, right? Because there's a time of tribulation that's coming. So they're going to be trampled underfoot. They will tread the holy city, that's Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days and clothed in sackcloth. So there's two references. During the time that the Gentiles, and this is the reign of the the beast, will tread Jerusalem. Because remember, he sets up shop so to speak, in the holy city that's also referenced in Daniel in in Daniel chapter 9. He sets up shop, you know, he makes his headquarters in Jerusalem. Um, It is a time for 42 months, but during that parallel time, the two witnesses will also be sent into Jerusalem to preach the gospel for 1,260 days, which is also Three and a half years. Okay. Now, verse four. He says, "These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before God in the earth. And, and and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants, and and if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this matter. These have the power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. but they have the power over waters to turn them to blood." and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So the two witnesses, which there's all this speculation of who they are, some people say it'll be Moses and Elijah, some people say Enoch and Elijah, and it can be all of that or none of the above because there's no indicator that it is any of them. And they base that, of course, off of the fact that Moses turn was used to strike the water in Egypt and turn it to blood. And because Elijah prophesied that the heavens would be shut up for seven years. And so that's where they indicate that from, but that can be anybody. And know, there's also argument that it's Elijah and Enoch because both of them were not because God took them in a sense, you know, both of them were hapazo. They were caught up. They did not see death. They were raptured. There's multiple raptures in the Bible, and the first rapture is Enoch, okay? The second one was Elijah. So that's that kind of goes out there again for people who say that the rapture doesn't take place. There were multiple raptures. You can find multiple ones from the Old Testament counting into the New Testament. And Elijah and Enoch were not the only ones, so I challenge you to study your Bible and find the multi-layers of rapture in the Old and New Testament, okay? But without going off into that, we don't know who the two witnesses are. It is not an indicator of who they are. They can be any of those three people, or it can be two totally different people that we have no idea about, okay? Or one of them could be Elijah just because of the promise that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and we don't know who the other person would be. It doesn't matter, really. It's not one of those things that you should be arguing over. Um, just know that the two witnesses will come. They will preach in Jerusalem and they will preach for 42 months, for three and a half years. Okay, And they will have the power to prophesy and to bring down plagues and even kill people in a sense. The powerful cross reference to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 6 that I wanted to uh, get you all to understand or to know about is, um, is that the cross references is in Zechariah chapter 11. verses 11 through 14. So this is just to prove to you that there's not much new under the sun. The only thing that was hidden was the church age and the Harpazo, which was not revealed until the New Testament. But everything else is actually uh, or was already confirmed in the Old Testament. This is why I tell so many people who are really stuck on the New Testament and Paul, 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 we call them Paulines. That's kind of like the nickname they've been given that you cannot, you're missing so much richness by not reading the Old Testament. The Bible is a whole. You cannot have a new covenant without an old covenant. The two go together, the end. I mean, it it is what it is. So in Zechariah 4, verses 11 through 14, Zechariah has a powerful vision. And I want to read this to you because it is exactly who these people are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. It says in Zechariah four eleven, starting at verse 11 through 14. It says, and then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lamp stand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are those two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me, And said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So remember, God tells John in verse four of Revelation 11, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. But he also tells Zechariah, who are they? These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So, Zechariah, that we on written account, was the first person who actually saw the two witnesses long before John saw them, long before Mashiach even came to earth. Which is really powerful. I think the self-fulfilling prophecy behind this that I find to be very interesting is that the official seal of Israel today, and some of you may know this and some of you may not. When we think about the seal of Israel, we typically think of their flag, which is the blue and white flag with the the six-pointed star that they call the Star of David. And there's a lot of controversy about that star. But the actual official seal of Israel is actually the lampstand, which is the menorah, the 7 Uh, candlestick menorah in between two uh, olive branches. That is the official government seal of Israel. And I just find that to be so interesting and powerful because it's kind of a, it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're basing that on Zachariah. You know, the majority of the Jews do not even touch the New Testament because to, to say that that Yeshua was the Mashiach is blasphemy. So they don't even have any idea of what John wrote in the book of Revelation about two witnesses coming to their land and preaching for 1,260 days. So it's really interesting that it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy that they make that the official seal of Israel, predestining them, to having the two witnesses that actually will preach in Jerusalem one day very soon. But unfortunately, as we know, they will be killed and their bodies will be laid in the street for three and a half years, or excuse me, three and a half days, I apologize. And then they will be resurrected and they will be raptured. There's another rapture right there, right in front of everyone. Okay, so... The last person, I, the last thing I want to point out to you in our closing is uh, the woman and the woman that, um, excuse me, not the woman that rides the beast, but the woman from the sign um, in heaven that's in Revelation chapter 12 that John sees, okay? The woman and the dragon. And I. the only thing I really want to point out about the woman and the dragon is this, The fact that in verse starting at verse 13 through 17, I'm gonna just read that real quick. It says, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, remember he gets kicked out of heaven, he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half. From the presence of the serpent, or 1260 days. I wanted to point that out. And that woman that is seen in Revelation chapter 12, I just want to give you a proper breakdown because there's a lot of speculation that the woman, okay, the woman represents the church. She gives birth to this male child um, that is caught up, harpozoed, into the air. Um, People say that that's the representation of the rapture and then she flees into the wilderness. This is something that is also used by uh, post-tribulation people that say that it is the church that flees into the wilderness. But here's why that cannot be true. The church does not give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. And so... And on top of that, the church is referenced as the bride, the bride of Christ who has made herself ready. Um, She also represents uh, the, the, the ten virgins. And there's the point is, is that the reference of the church is female. Always. It is female attributes. And so the woman giving birth to a male child that is caught up into heaven, that male child cannot, you know, it, it's not the church that's being raptured. And it's not Jesus being raptured. And so that doesn't make any sense. All right. So, so, but however, Jesus being a male child when he was born, however, he did, um, he did, come out of Israel, and Israel is considered female, okay? So the woman does not represent the church. It actually represents Israel and a remnant of Israel, and it actually perfectly matches, going back to uh, Matthew chapter 24, again, starting at verse 19, when Jesus gives the Jews very specific instructions that when they see the abomination that makes one desolate, that mentioned by Daniel, he says you are to flee, flee to the mountains, flee to the wilderness, okay? And so this woman representing a remnant of Israel, and the reason why I say a remnant is because I need you to understand that even though the Antichrist or the pseudo-Christ slash beast sets up shop in the holy city of Jerusalem for 42 months, it's He's not going to kick out all the Jewish people. There will be Jewish people. And I'll even go as far as saying the synagogue of Satan, who will ab- absolutely accept and welcome the beast into Jerusalem. But Jesus gives a clear warning. And I find it interesting because, you know, most Orthodox Jews don't even know anything of the new Testament. So, Will they really be able to see? I guess for those who are studying studying Daniel and don't believe that that 70th week is necessarily fulfilled through the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, then perhaps that group could see that this is a bad sign and they'll flee. But for those reading that New Testament, and there are some that do, um, they they should know that it's time to go. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's time to run. Don't even come back at that point. And and also, too, the interesting thing is that the woman goes into the wilderness uh, where she is nourished, taken care of, protected, basically, for three and a half years. And there has been an old, old prophetic word that's been out for many decades, several decades now, I should say, that the city of Petra, and some of you all know about Petra, especially if you've traveled and done the whole tour of Israel. The Petra is in Jordan. It's a stone area that you know is built in the mountains. It's difficult to get into, um, and many people believe that this will be a place of refuge and safety during the time of the Great Tribulation that the Jews would be able to flee to. Um, That is a strong possibility, and here's why: because when we go into Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, it clearly states. Um, when he's talking about the reign of the beast, um, in fact, I'm going to read that one verse to you. It says, and he shall enter the glorious land. And again, this is Daniel 11:41. 41. He shall enter the glorious land. That's the Antichrist. The glorious land we know is Jerusalem and its surrounding places, which is today, modern day Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. And he over he over topples, uh, topples many countries. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, I'm not going to go into Edom and Moab, but I'm going to go into Ammon. Because Ammon, or Ammon, depending on which way you want to pronounce it, is, was actually Rabbath Ammon, or Ammon, who was the ruler of the Ammonite. And Ammonites. And that the the Ammonites is what is currently modern day Ammon with an A. So it was previously spelled A M M O N, Amon, and it is currently Ammon with an A, A M M A N. And Ammon is the capital of Jordan. And Jordan is where Petra is. And it's also in the wilderness and it's also in a mountainous area. So it's really interesting. So Jordan escapes the wrath of the beast and Jordan is just south of Israel. So how, I don't know. We don't know. But they escape. So if they somehow are protected and the... Israel remnant flees into Jordan, into Ammon for protection, into Petra, then it really kind of makes sense. So I just wanted to point those two things out to you, who the woman is, and why it represents Israel and not necessarily the church. Um, the last, I said that was the last thing, but one more thing I want to want to endure or leave you with. Is the fact that we find multiple times the word saints during the tribulation um we find saints in heaven we find the martyrs under the throne or the altar um that was in the fifth seal we find the saints on earth we find the hundred and forty four thousand so you know that can be confusing, but it's actually very simple. There are plenty of people who are current unbelievers and who do not know much, if anything at all, about the gospel of Jesus Christ that will actually be converted during the tribulation, okay? And that's part of the reason why the 144,000 are dispersed. Um, perhaps even there'll be some converts from the two witnesses that'll be preaching in Jerusalem for three and a half years. We don't know. But there are absolutely going to be people who are going to be converted during that time. Everyone is not going to take the mark of the beast, although I do believe it'll be majority. But everyone will not take the mark of the beast. There will be those who will escape, who will live in hiding. There will be underground churches, even in the sense, people meeting in secret, people on the run constantly, like maybe even a type of underground railroad, so to speak, that will happen during this terrible time. And so they will still be saints. And they and they will live a very persecuted time, and many, many people will die. There will be believers that'll die, and there'll be unbelievers that are going to die because of the type of judgments that is going to be poured poured out upon the earth. It's a time of wrath. And as Jesus described it, it is a time that the world has never seen, and it is a time that the world will never see again. So it's something that none of us can even begin to fathom in our in our mind. We can't even begin to fathom what that would look like. And We, I don't understand anyone who would actually want to be here for it when we can't even fathom in our worst nightmare 10 times over what exactly it will be like to try to live on Earth during that season Um, and actually try to survive it. I mean, especially in the West where we're so... We're so used to everything being handed to us. And we had a taste of that with quarantine, with COVID-19. And we got a taste to see if what it's like to have our freedom, our daily freedom taken from us. And Can you imagine um, that a thousand times greater in uh, a tribulation? We can't even fathom that, you know. And so I don't understand why anyone in their right mind, so to speak, would actually want to go through something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that there will be people who will be left behind. And because of the great trial that is ahead, and they will see it, it will bring forth many converts, okay? But that is not a designated time for the true body of Christ. And I must add true body, the wise virgins, not the foolish ones, the wheat, and not the tares, the sheep, and not the goats, okay? It's, and God has not appointed us to wrath, as Paul has stated, but that we would be in that congregation, that multitude of people that John saw in Revelation chapter 6 with white robes and palm branches in our hands, standing before the Lamb and praising Him day and night. So I pray that this teaching has been enlightening and encouraging and thought provoking, as I said earlier, for you. I pray that this is giving you great understanding. And even if you're not, it will, again, push you to get into your word, uh, to press in deeper to the Lord and seek his face and, and listen to the Holy Spirit. And allow him to uh, give you revelation knowledge of who God is, of, of his word, and understanding of what is going to transpire. And even more so, to help prepare you and even motivate you to go deeper and to find out what it is that God wants you to be, who he wants you to be, what he wants you to be in this season. So God bless all of you all. Thank you for your time. I pray again that this is uh, encouraging to you all. Um, thank you for allowing me into your homes this evening uh, for or whenever, whatever, those of you who are listening on our podcast, whatever time of the day, morning, noon, or night that you have been able to listen to this teaching. I want to thank you for taking time out to listen to us. God bless all of you. Until next time, shalom. This is Mina Lee Jones with Faithful Walk Healing Ministries, and I would like to personally thank you for supporting our ministry and for sharing these audio teachings. My prayer is that these podcasts will challenge your heart, mind, and soul, and encourage you to study the Word of God and to seek a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Our website is www.FaithfulWalkHealingMinistries.com where you can find more information about our ministry, upcoming conferences, and links to our social media accounts. I would also like to invite you to join our interactive online Bible study that takes place every Thursday night starting at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can join us by calling 712 770 4852 and the access code is 607594. I look forward to hearing from you soon. God bless you and shalom.